If you have your Bibles, maybe you turn with me to Isaiah 27. I'm pursuing the theme of salvation, especially what I would call the second phase of salvation. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment. But let me read to you the passage that I want us to look at tonight. Isaiah 27, I'm going to read the first six verses and the last verse. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, they will sing a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take fruit Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And then let me read the last verse. In that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Well, as I say, I'm uh, pursuing the theme of salvation, such a great salvation. And I'm especially pursuing what I would call the second phase of salvation. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that salvation has phases to it? There's three phases, three steps to salvation. Have you ever noticed that? I think we don't uh, talk that way very much. But it's very clear in, in the Bible you'll find that uh, the Bible uses three different tenses when it's talking about salvation. It will say things like this. It will say, by grace, you have been saved. And it's using a past tense. You have been saved. But then you get verses which use a, a present tense. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 will talk about us who are being saved. To those who are perishing, the gospel's foolishness, but to us who are, be, who are being saved. It's a present tense, something going on. To us who are being saved, the gospel's the power of God, the salvation, the foolishness of God is the wisdom, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And then you, you know surely of scriptures that say things like this, he who, who, he who endures to the end shall be saved. You notice these, these three tenses, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. All, all three of those uh, things are said in scripture. It reminds me of a story that I, I once uh, came across of a Salvation Army girl in the 19th century who was traveling with my, one of these um, Victorian trains. Uh, trains began in the Victorian era. It was a great excitement when they started building railway lines all over Britain. And on one occasion, there was a... Sorry, I'm trying to get my watch to uh, start uh, ticking over. On one occasion, there was a Salvation Army girl sitting in a tra one of these Victorian trains next to an elderly gentleman. And she was very zealous, uh, 
Salvation Army girl and very eager to see people saved. So she turned to the old, the old man next door to her and said, uh, excuse me, sir, can, can you tell me, are you saved? What she didn't know was that she was sitting next to Bishop Westcott, who was a famous New Testament Greek scholar of the 19th century. He turned to her and he said, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. <laughs> well, that's the way it is in Scripture. There's, there's these three tenses about salvation. And they're not the same thing. They're, they're quite, they're quite uh, different things. When we say we have been saved, we are talking about being born again, being justified. We're talking about being made children of God. We're talking about being transferred into the kingdom of God. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. We have been saved. We've been born again. We've been justified. We've been made God's children. We've been put into the kingdom of God. We have been saved. When the Bible uses the phrase, we are being saved, it's not so much talking about uh, getting born again or becoming a Christian. It's more that we are working out our salvation. Remember that phrase is used, Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation. You've got it now, now get it moving. You get, get, you go, on to, go on to get your salvation flowing and moving. You are being saved. And then there is referring to, to breaking away from the power of sin, growing in, in grace, growing in fellowship, Rest, being rescued from the, the old ways of life. We are being saved. We're being delivered from the old kind of ways in which we live, we used to live. And uh, God's grace is continually working in us. We are being rescued from the darkness that we were once in. It's not so much uh, coming to salvation. It's more working out our salvation and, and being rescued from all the, the implications of the old life we used to live. When the Bible says that we shall be saved... It's referring very often to the resurrection, the final phase of our salvation is when we are raised from the, raised from the dead and given our reward. It's referring to uh, the resurrection and what we get at the resurrection. Our great reward comes at the resurrection. We are judged in the body, says the Bible. We are judged in the body for the deeds done in the body and our, our rewards and our blessings, our final inheritance comes at that. So when the Bible says he sh things like he, sh he who endures to the end shall be, shall be saved, it's not saying he who endures to the end shall be born again. That, that wouldn't make sense. It's not saying he who endures to the end shall, 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 shall be justified or he who endures to the end shall become a child of God. None of those things would make, would make sense. They're not true. It, it means he who endures to the end gets to the final phase of his salvation where Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. And uh, 1 Corinthians says that there's a judgment by fire. And if any person's works are burned up, he suffers loss. But, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And in that context, it doesn't mean uh, get, to be, get to be a Christian. It means get to our final rescue where we're delivered from sin altogether, raised in the body and given our final rewards, as, as Scripture puts it. So there is that, that triplicity, there is that threefoldness in Scripture. And I want to speak over these days on the second phase, on working out salvation, this great salvation that, that we've got it. I'm thinking that most of you are, uh, are Christians, I'm hoping you all are, but, uh, but really that's only the beginning. You, you then have to, 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 be, to go on being saved and work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you, Philippians chapter 2. But this triplicity, before I get into details, this triplicity is all over the place. This threefoldness 
is all over the place. It's not only used with regard to the word salvation. It's, it's used of many other things. It's used of the word kingdom. The Bible often says that God's kingdom has come. Jesus is the king. And when Jesus comes, the kingdom comes. He is the king. So when he comes, the kingdom's come. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, said Jesus, then the kingdom of God has come among you. The kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. On the other hand, there's parables like the uh, parable of the yeast, where uh, the kingdom of God is like yeast that grows and it fills the whole earth. The kingdom of God is coming, you, you could say that. And then you have times when Matthew 25 and so on, where it refers to the day when the, king, the final kingdom comes, the kingdom of glory finally comes. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God will come. All three of those things are said in Scripture. You have the same thing with regard to eternal life. When you believe in Jesus, you're given eternal life. But Paul can say things like this. He can address Timothy and say, Timothy, lay hold of eternal life. Is, is he telling Timothy to get saved? Is he telling Timothy to become a Christian? No, of course not. Timothy is his, his co-worker. No, he's saying, Timothy, lay hold of this life. He who sows to the Spirit shall back from the Spirit reap this life from God. There's, there's life to be reaped. There's life to be entered into. You've got it already, but there's such a thing as laying hold of life. And then there are verses of Scripture, you know, you know of them, I'm sure, which speaks of a, a day when we get the various rewards and, and in the life to come, eternal life. You know, verses like that, I'm sure. So there are many um, threefold descriptions of salvation in Scripture. And then you get the same thing with the various illustrations of being a Christian. You see, the Bible puts salvation often in terms of illustrations. It's like running a race. It's like building a house. It's like uh, traveling on a journey. And again, you find, you find the same threefoldness. Scripture often describes the Christian life as a race. Many people, 1 Corinthians 9 and elsewhere, many people run in a race. Only one person gets the prize. But if you, th if you think of it, there's a threefoldness in that illustration. First of all, you are put in the race. You are qualified. You are qualified to, to, to inherit the kingdom, says Colossians. You're qualified to be a runner. You're put in the race. But then you have to run the race. And finally, there is a prize. And Paul says, I, I deal with my body. I discipline myself. Lest having preached to others, I should be rejected. Rejected for receiving the prize. Or think about the illustration of a building. It has a foundation, and then the building goes up, and it's being got ready to be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid. The foundation is laid, it's finished, it's stage number one. Now let every person take care how he builds upon it. That's stage number two, and it's going up, it's growing, it's becoming, uh, things, sto living stones are being put into it, it's growing, it's going up, and it's going to become a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The same kind of Triplicity, something begun, something continued, something, something coming to a completion. Or think of the picture of a journey, especially the journey of Israel. Remember how Hebrews puts the whole of salvation in terms of a journey. Israel was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The Passover Lamb died for the sins of the people, the sins of anybody who would shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And Israel sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. And the moment they did that, they became Israel. Before that time, they couldn't get out 
once they sheltered under the blood of the Lamb, they couldn't stay in. The very second they were redeemed, they were marching. Remember how they were dressed? They, had, they were fully clothed. They had shoes upon their feet. They were having unleavened bread like biscuits. You could cook it, cook it speedily. They had a staff in their hands. They were ready to go. The very moment they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they were pilgrims. They were traveling. Ah, oh, yes, but the journey would be a long one. They had to cross the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea, the, the, the lakes of northern Egypt. They had to cross the, the Sea of Reeds. They had to uh, go through the desert. They would get to the River Jordan. They had to get over the River Jordan. They had to conquer all the Canaanite tribes. There would be a long, long battle. And finally, they would enter into rest and enjoy reaping the blessing of what they had done for God. So they are redeemed, they are travel, they're traveling, and they are to enter into rest. The same, the same threefoldness. Or it's sometimes put in terms of marriage. Uh, the various times when Paul will say, I, I betrothed you to Christ. Uh, and uh, marriages in Israel took a bit of time. They took stages and steps. First of all, you were betrothed. <coughs> But then there were all sorts of things to be done. There was the cleansing, the washings, the ablutions. Remember, remember Ephesians 5, the, the, the bride being washed with water and so on. And finally, there would be the marriage supper. So, so again, betrothal, preparation, and the final day. All these things, you see, have a kind of a threefoldness to it. And, and I'm not giving you a complete list. I'm just picking out the, the, the big ones. But there, there are others. This, this teaching is everywhere that salvation comes in stages. Stage number one is when you are constituted a child of God. And they are stages. They are definite steps. And this is important. Uh, people don't always see this, but it's very important. It has a lot to do with your assurance of salvation. I think there are many people who think of these things not as, as steps, but as a kind of package um, with different aspects to it. But uh, no, they are steps and stages. The reason why you uh, need to think of it that way is because the first step is done and finished and accomplished. You've got it forever. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid. Once you are saved, you are saved. That foundation will never be laid. And when judgment day comes, it is not the foundation that's being tested. When the, when the fire comes, it's not testing the foundation. It's testing what has been built upon the foundation. The foundation's fixed. That's gone. You, you don't have to worry about that. You've got it. In Judgment Day, it's not the foundation that is, that is tested by fire. It is what you build upon the foundation that is tested by fire. The foundation's there. You, you've got it. it you'll never lose it. Israel were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And then they had to inherit the promises of God. And remember, they, they failed badly. And God got angry with them, and they lost. For, for one generation, they lost Canaan. God, God got so angry, he said, I swear in my wrath, none of those who saw my glory will, 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 will enter into Canaan. And they got stuck in the wilderness. But I want you to notice, they didn't get unredeemed. They didn't get taken back and put back into Egypt again. That was finished. That was done. They, they never get unredeemed. They just get stuck where they are. Once the foundation is laid, it is laid. And the same with, with the betrothal. Remember in Israelite culture that once a woman was betrothed, it would take a divorce to undo it. It wasn't a kind of modern engagement. It was much more serious. 
than a, a modern engagement. Remember, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. They hadn't got married yet, but it would take... You remember, Joseph thought he'd better divorce Mary. Although they were only engaged, it would take a divorce to undo it. And that was very serious and uh, wouldn't normally happen. So the first stage is, as it were, given. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. You've got that. Now lay hold of eternal life. But the first thing is given. You've got it. It's yours. I give them eternal life. So this triplicity is important for assurance. You've got stage number one. You've believed in Jesus. You've got it. You will never lose it. and never come back. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid. You're given eternal life. It's yours. You own it. You've been redeemed. You'll never be de-redeemed or unredeemed. You're qualified. You're not, you're not running the race. Think of it like this. You're not running the race in order to qualify for the race. There are people who seem to think that. You know, when, when, if you really run the race, well, then finally you'll be saved. That is saying that you're running the race to be qualified for the race. No, no. You're not running the race to be qualified for the race. You're qualified already. You're running the race to win the prize. That's all you're running the race for. So there are these stages and phases in salvation. And I want us to dwell upon it a little bit over this weekend. Now, the reason why I choose Isaiah 27 is because it it gives us, I think, a description of our basic position. If we are to lay hold of eternal life, if we are to run the race, if we are to inherit the promises, remember, uh, Hebrews says, by faith and patience, you inherit the promises. It only takes faith to get stage number one. It takes faith and patience to get stage numbers two and three. You have to persist in faith. You have to go on in faith. You have to persevere in faith. Uh, saving faith does, does not bring you your reward. It just qualifies you to begin. It just qualifies you to run the race. And uh, then, then you, you work it out and you run the race. But... Um, it seems to me that uh, when you think about this, the first thing you need to know is, is what I would call your whole position. Before, before we come into details and we look at a few details, we need to learn how to pray. We need to learn how to find fellowship with the Lord. We need to learn how to uh, go after that for which we were called, as, as Philippians 3 says. But uh, before you we, we look at any kind of details, you, you need to get right your whole position. When, when you're working out your salvation, the first thing you, you need to know is that, is that you're settled and that, that you're put in this position of being saved. There's a foundation that's been laid. You've been qualified. You've been betrothed. And Jesus is not planning to break the engagement. Your entire position, as it were, is, is fixed and settled. Your whole position is fixed. I was trying just now, sitting outside, to, to think of a, a kind of illustration to help you with this. And... Uh, this is the best one I can think of. Let, let me tell you a little story. It's a fictional story. I'm inventing it, but uh, let me tell you a little story. Imagine a Kenyan woman who uh, has a baby, and she's a single mum, which happens a lot in Kenya. She has a baby, and she's a single mum. And then a few years later, a Kenyan in England asks her to marry him. So she says, yeah, okay. And she comes to England, but she leaves her baby behind with her sister or her family. This sort of thing happens quite a lot. It's uh, fictional, but only just fictional. 
But uh, she leaves her baby behind and uh, comes to England and gets married and settles here. But she leaves the baby behind in, in, in Kenya with her sister or her grandmother or whoever. And the years go by and she hardly sees her daughter. She stays here for year after year. Finally, the little girl is, uh, is not a little girl anymore. She's about 17. And the mother's uh, been trying to see her daughter for many, many years. So one day, they sort of negotiate, and she saves up the fare. She's not a rich lady, but she saves up the fare, and uh, all the applications for visas are made in Kenya and so on. And the 17-year-old girl comes here to Britain. And when she's here, the, the mum's got all sorts of ideas for her. Why don't you stay here? Why don't you do a course? You, I'll try and get you through university. And uh, the, the, the possibility of her staying here comes up on the agenda. And this, is, this is fiction, but it's, uh, it often happens. And uh, so the mother wants her the 17-year-old, 17-year-old girl to, as it will, stay with her. Only trouble is, she doesn't have a visa to settle here. She only has a visa to visit for a few weeks. And so when the mother says, no, no stay on, let's, let's apply for a course, she ends up being here illegally because she's, she's meant to go back after three or four weeks. And so she, she gets into trouble. And uh, the immigration authorities find out about it. And so they say, hey, you know, you, you shouldn't be here. Your, your visa's run out. And they, they, they want to deport her and send her back to, to, to Africa. But the mother appeals against it. You know, she's my daughter and she's 17. And uh, by English law, if you have a daughter abroad and she, she's not 18 yet, you, by the English law, she's allowed to come and be with her mum. And uh, so she appeals, you know, that she's allowed, and she's allowed to be here. And this thing goes on for months. This thing goes on for, for ages. There's, there's, she's threatened to be sent out. The, the, the immigration authorities send all sorts of threatening letters. And there's appeal, there's court cases, there's interviews. And the poor, the poor girl is, as it, is, as it were, uh, pushed from pillar to post. She's a foreigner anyway. She can hardly speak English. She's Kikuyu or something, and she can hardly speak the language. She doesn't know where she is. She's being pushed from pillar to post, and uh, she doesn't know whether she's going to stay here or not. And it goes on for weeks and weeks and months and months, and uh, everyone's arguing, and the, and the home office is sort of a, a bit unpleasant sometimes. And the poor girl doesn't know where she is. And then one day, one day a letter comes from the home office she has been given permission to stay. And what rejoicing, how they rejoice. She's going to be with her mum for the rest of her life now. She's going to get some degree here. She said her life is settled. Now, here's, here's my illustration. Suddenly, after all this sort of uncertainty and wondering what's going to happen, is she in this kingdom or is she not? Is she being going to be thrown out? Or is she, is she, does she have any future here? And being pushed around from pillar to boat. Suddenly, everything is settled. She knows she's here. She's been given official permission to stay. Her situation is secure, and she's rejoicing. They're praising God. The whole family is, is so happy. This girl here is settled in a new country. Mind you, she's not very good at English. She doesn't have a job. Uh, she, she's a Kikuyu. She, she, she's been speaking Kikuyu out in the village for the last 17 years. Uh, uh, her mum knows English, but not she. And so, so she's very sort of uncertain about how to do. But although she's got all sorts of problems, she's got to now become British. She's got to learn the language. She's got to get a job. She's got to go to some career. But although all the details have got to be worked out, her total overall position is fixed and settled. Do you see the point of my illustration? 
That's where we are in the kingdom of God. Although there may be a lot for us to work out, although we've got to learn to learn the language of Zion, although we've got to get some sort of uh, activity in the kingdom of God, although all these things to be worked out, our basic position is fixed. We are there, we're in the kingdom, we are built upon the foundation, we're qualified, we're running the race. We don't even have to think about these things. This this is settled and fixed. Now, this to me is the starting point. If If we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we must begin with a kind of certainty, we must begin with a fixed position, we must know where we are, we must know that God's never going to leave us, never going to forsake us. We're just working out the details. The actual basic position is given to us, we've got it, we're all right. All the, there may be big battles ahead of us, all sorts of problems, but, uh, but problems or not, our actual status is fixed and we're secure. Our overall position is right and assured. Now, that's the point that I'm trying to make. Look at it in terms of Isaiah 27. It is the last vision of 15 visions. You, it begins in Isaiah 13. And if you go through Isaiah 13 to 27 and uh, look at the various sections, you'll see there are 15 visions, and they're in three groups of five. And this, this whole chapter, 15 chapters, 15 visions, although the visions don't exactly correspond to the chapters, but uh, in, in these various visions, it is God who's bringing salvation to the nations. Isaiah 1 to 5 is the state of Israel. Isaiah 6 to 12 is how God is going to rescue Israel and Judah in the south. Isaiah 13 to 27 is how this great salvation is not just going to come to Israel, it's going to come to all of the nations. It's going to come to Egypt, it's going to come to Moab, it's going to come to Assyria, it's going to come to Tyre, you just read the, the headings of these chapters. It's going to come to Cush, it's going to come to Duma, it's going to come to to Arabia, just read the the headings of these various chapters. It's going to come to all of these nations. And finally, it's going to come to Israel, and the people of God are going to be settled and fixed. And the last vision, the last of 15 visions, is this one here. In that day, in that day, the Lord's going to settle his people. The Lord's going to give them a sure and certain salvation. That's where where, uh, this chapter comes in, in the movement of the book of Isaiah. So what is our position then? This, this working out salvation, what is our, what is our starting point? What kind of position are we in as we seek to inherit the promises, to work out our salvation, to achieve something, to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of us? You know that verse in Philippians chapter 3? Paul says, I want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of me. When we are saved, we are saved to achieve something. There's something that we are to lay hold of for God. And he laid hold of us that we might lay hold of something for him. And Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of me. I haven't finished yet. I'm pressing it. I'm trying to get there. I've not got there yet. The upward call of the prize. I want to achieve something. I want to work out my salvation. I want to get the prize. I want Jesus to say, well done. I I, I want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of me. But uh, what, what is this, this starting point? Well, here it is in Isaiah, put in an Old Testament way. I've chosen something that I think might be interesting to you. I could just uh, quote New Testament verses, but I prefer to do it in this Old Testament picture. What is our basic position? Well, here it is. First of all, verse 1. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, 
will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, now what's happening here is this. Isaiah is, uh, is using an ancient legend. We, we sometimes do that. Preachers sometimes use literature to uh, make a point. I sometimes quote Macbeth when I'm preaching. If it were done, when it is done, then, then twere well it were done quickly. He's, trying to, he's about to murder a king. If it were done, if it was all over when, it, when it's done, well, it would be it straight away. If twere done, when it is done, said, said Shakespeare, then twere well it were done quickly. But here upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. The only trouble is I might kill the king, but there's one day it's going to be a judgment day. Well, you see, that's not history. That's just Shakespeare. And actually, Shakespeare wasn't always terribly accurate in his history. You quote a piece of, of literature to make a point. Or think of Lady Macbeth. Remember Lady Macbeth? She does kill the king. And she goes around, she's haunted with guilt. She's trying to wash her hands of this blood. She goes around having dreams and nightmares and trying to wash her blood. I like to quote that bit as well. You see, sometimes preachers will, will quote a bit of literature just to, to make a, a sort of spiritual point. And that's what Isaiah is doing. There was a Canaanite myth. And the myth was that when God wanted to create, when the gods, in the Canaanite mythology, when the gods wanted to uh, create the world, or when God wanted to create the world, Marduk, the Babylonian god, when he wanted to create the, uh, the world, there was a great enemy there. There were these beasts and monsters. And the sea was, uh, was a kind of enemy in, in Canaanite mythology that the sea was a person. There's a little hint of it even in Genesis. Uh, the Spirit of God was moving upon the deep. And, and the Hebrew word there is Tahom. The name of the Babylonian god was Ta'amat. It's the same word. He's almost using the same word in Genesis chapter 1. There's this enemy. The sea is a kind of enemy of God. But, but, the, but the, in the, uh, the old Canaanite mythology, God arises, the king or, or, or the god, Marduk, the Babylonian god in the case of Babylon. The, the Babylonian god comes and he slays the monster and creates the world. And, and this enemy trying to, as it were, this dragon, these leviathan, these monsters of the sea, trying to, as it were, throw God down. God, God destroys them and destroys Rahab, Rahab the sea monster, and Tiamat, and all these, these Babylonian gods. And so Isaiah says, in that day, and he's using, he's using a kind of picture from Canaanite mythology, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong hand will punish Leviathan, the, the fleeing serpent in Canaanite mythology. He will slay the dragon that's in the sea. He's using this picture language taken from uh, Canaanite stories of God having a mighty great enemy that resists him when he tries, when God is wanting to create something. Now, I interpret that like this. It means that the, the basic starting point of our salvation is that God slays everything that is against us. He slaughters the devil. He slaughters any kind of opposition. He takes us out, out of the kingdom of darkness and he transfers us into a different kingdom. And we're in the kingdom of God's dear son. This is the kind of Old Testament equivalent to, uh, to Luke chapter 11. Do you remember Luke chapter 11? The strong man armed. Here, here's a kind of strong conqueror who owns a castle. The strong man armed keeps his goods in peace. It, it's Jesus' way of talking about the devil. And the people of the world are in a kind of castle. And they're kept there by Satan. They're kept there with ease. Satan has no, no problem keeping his people. He keeps them there with ease. The strong man armed 
keeps his goods at peace. Ah, but then there comes someone who is stronger than he and robs him of his armour in which he trusted and sets his goods at liberty. It's the same picture. The great problem of the world is not just politics or or economics or, or, or financial crisis. The great problem of the world is that Satan has a kingdom and men and women are in the kingdom of darkness. They're ruled over. They're blind by nature. They can't even see the things of God. They are in bondage. They are in captivity. The strong man armed keeps his goods in peace. Leviathan, the dragon, these, 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 these mighty forces of evil, they, as it were, hold the world in darkness. But the first thing that ever happens to you when you get saved is that you're taken totally and completely out of the kingdom of darkness and you're put into the kingdom of God's dear son and you, you go through a transfer of of rulers, a transfer of reign, of, of reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S. God reigns over you. He rules over you. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. Sin is not reigning over you. Sin's still around, but it's not reigning over you. It's not ruling over you. The first thing you need to know, if you were to work out salvation, is that your entire position has been changed. The enemy has been slaughtered. The dragon has been killed. The violence has been abolished. The strong man has been, his castle has been knocked down and the goods have been released and set free, you need to know that you are totally and completely taken out of the kingdom of darkness. You you see, being a Christian is is not just uh, being a good sort of guy and trying to do a a few little good things. It is being transferred into an entirely new realm and you are never going to go back to that old realm. You are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness. The dragon is, is, is slaughtered. God with his hard and great and strong sword has punished Leviathan. He's dealt with any kind of enemy. He's dealt with the demonic. He's dealt with spiritual blindness. He's dealt with the kingdom that you were once in. He's destroyed and, 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 and slain the dragon that's in the sea. It's put in in this kind of Canaanite picture language, but it is a picture of a day of salvation. This is the 15th of of the visions. The visions have been going round and round and round the nations and, and, and getting closer and closer and closer to the final salvation. And here it is, finally, in that day, the Lord will slaughter the dragon that's in the sea. He'll rescue, he'll rescue his people. He'll rescue them from the kingdom of darkness, transfer them and put them into his kingdom. That's the position that we are in. We're not, we're not just uh, trying to be Christian and uh, struggling to, to pray and uh, seeking, seeking to, as it were, prop ourselves up and keep ourselves going. That's not the picture. The picture is that, that an old king has been slaughtered. Old enemies have been slaughtered forever. God, with his mighty hard sword, has slaughtered our, our great enemy and transferred us into a new kingdom. And grace is ruling and reigning over us. And, and the great dragon that was in the sea has gone forever. This is the Bible's teaching. The Bible actually says we, that, that Satan cannot touch us. You know, you know that verse in, in 1 John? The evil one does not touch us. Satan can do all sorts of things. He's still around, but, but we're not in his kingdom. He's, he's been slaughtered in such a way that we have been rescued. We have been saved. We're now working out what we've got. But we're in this new position. And, and Satan has been, has been utterly and totally defeated. He cannot get us back. No matter what we do, Satan cannot get us back. We cannot be condemned. We cannot be unredeemed. We cannot be no longer born again. Those things cannot happen to us. That old position we we used to be in, it has been slaughtered. And we are in a new position 
altogether. That, that's the starting point. Ah, but then let's go on. Not only has our basic problem been solved, and we're not, we're not trying to get saved or trying to get justified or trying to get in the kingdom of God. We are there and we're never going to be taken out. And our great enemy, the dragon, remember Revelation describes Satan as a dragon. Our great enemy, the dragon, has been, has been defeated utterly. And then, secondly, then, God is, the, the, the picture language changes. And he leaves aside Canaanite mythology. And he starts using the picture of a vineyard, which Isaiah has done before. You remember, if you know Isaiah, that back in chapter 5, uh, Isaiah sang a song. Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard. He dug it and cleared it and so on, and he goes looking for fruit. The picture of God's people being a vineyard is there in chapter 5. But now he comes back. And once again, he uses the picture language of a vineyard. In that day, the people of God will be a pleasant vineyard. Let's sing about it, he says. He sang the song in chapter 5. Now he's singing a different song in chapter 27. Let's sing a song about this vineyard, says Isaiah. I, the Lord, am its keeper. The next thing you need to know about this salvation is God is watching over you like a, how can I put it, like a worker in a vineyard caring for his flowers and his trees. He's watching over his vineyard to make sure that it produces fruit. So this new position that you're in, you're being cared for by the Lord of the vineyard. You're like a tree, you're like a, a vine. Remember Jesus said, uh, I... I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus used the same picture. My father is the, is the, is the one who, uh, who watches over the vine. The same picture is used in John 15. It comes from the Old Testament. But uh, the first thing that we see here is that God is, is the keeper. He's the guardian of the vineyard. So this position you're in, you're not on your own. You're not just struggling to work out this, this Christian life. God is, as it were, protecting his vineyard. He's determined to get fruit out of it. In, in, in Isaiah chapter 5, he's disappointed that he comes to Israel and there's no fruit. Okay, that's what was happening to Israel. But God's going to be so working that he'll bring in a new people, he'll bring salvation, and a different kind of vineyard will come along. And this new vineyard's going to be fruitful, and he is going to be the keeper. I, the Lord, am its keeper, the one protecting it, making sure nothing, no damage is done, no animals come in, no weeds come and destroy the, the fruitfulness. He is watching over and superintending the keeping of the vineyard. That's the picture of what God is doing for you. And of course, it's the same as, as John 15. Jesus picks up the same picture from the Old Testament. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He pulls anything out, which is not really helping us. And he is determined that we will, make, we will bear more fruit. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Abide in me. Without me, you could do nothing, says Jesus. It's the same picture. But the picture is that the Father, or God in the Old Testament, God is watching over his vineyard. And he is determined it's going to be fruitful. So this position that we're in, I want, I want us tonight to see that the total position 
we, we're, we're not just on our own. We're not just struggling to be religious or trying to be, to be good Christians. We are God's vineyard. And God is keeping us, protecting us, watching over us. Our basic position is one of being cared for and protected by God. There's, there's protection in this situation that we're in. Not only is there protection, there is provision. God is providing for us. I, the Lord, am its keeper, and every moment I water it. God is, as it were, looking after this vineyard and making sure that the plants are growing, watering it every day, caring for it, getting rid of the, the weeds, protecting, guarding, watering it. So, so this, is, this is our position. We, we are God's vineyard. We are, we are like trees growing in, in a vineyard, and God himself is caring for us, protecting us, making sure no enemy destroys us, nothing's going to take us away, no, nothing's going to uproot us. God is caring for his vineyard, and God is watering his vineyard. He's pouring water upon each little fl- pr- plant, making sure that every tree is flourishing, producing the fruit. We are not in charge of our salvation. God is in charge of it. We, we're cooperating with it. We, we, we're not passive. We're not sitting down doing nothing. We are taking part in this salvation. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to, we are to participate. But although we are participating, we are not in charge. We are not the Lord of the vineyard. God himself is the Lord of the vineyard. And our position is that God is watching over us and making sure that we bear fruit. And he'll do whatever needs to be done in order to produce fruit. If need be, he'll pull up some weeds. If need be, he'll chop up some branches. It ought not to be there. He's caring for us. And if we don't flow with him, he can be quite tough. But he's doing it in love. He's concerned. He's protecting us, guarding us making sure that fruit comes up out in our life. So there's the second thing. God himself is watching over us. He's giving us protection and provision. He's making sure nothing finally damages us. We can be damaged a bit along the way. I'm not saying that nothing can touch us. That wouldn't be true. But our, our, our position cannot be damaged. You, you cannot cease to be in the vineyard. Our, our total position is secure. God's keeping it, maintaining it. And he's providing all the resources. There's no reason why we should not be living godly lives. There's no reason why we are not, uh, should not be achieving something for the Lord because the provision and the resources are coming from God. They're not coming from us. He's the one watering. He's the one providing. He's the one making the, the, the fruit grow. The resources of the Christian life are not coming from us. Remember how Peter puts it? He says, all things that pertain to life and godliness, everything that pertains to our staying alive and everything that pertains to our godliness, these precious promises, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God is watching over us, protecting us, caring for us. And then the third thing. God tells us, and this is a wonderful thing, God tells us that he has no anger against us. Look at verse 4. I have no wrath. I am not angry, says God. Why do you think about that? Do you believe that, that God is never angry? Is that true? Is that totally true? 
Are there not verses in the Bible that says God gets, God, God gets angry with us? Are there not verses in the Bible that where God gets angry with his people? It's something that's being discussed a lot. I don't know whether you know, you've noticed what's going on in the world at the moment, but uh, for many of us, myself included, we have spent years trying to defend grace and uh, teach salvation by grace and uh, what I've been saying tonight, that once we're saved, we're saved forever. Some of us have been preaching that for years, as, as many of you know. But uh, have you noticed that we've got, uh, in the last uh, five years, maybe a bit more, there's all sorts of movements all over the world which are pushing grace to such an extreme that now, now you, you almost need to, to, to be on the other side. I, I went to a church in Sydney some time ago. I went to see Trevecca, my daughter, in Sydney, and I, I had a free Sunday and uh, stayed with Trevecca, and I went to the church down the road called Such and Such Grace Church, it was called. And I went there, and um, it was a church really emphasizing God's grace. And so the, the worship went like this, and the, the worship leader was le- leading, and uh, the lady, she, she was saying, you know, you're under God's grace. No matter what you do, it's all right, God accepts you. You've got sin in your life, it's all right, God, God, God will bless you, he'll, he'll help you, save you, you're okay. And she went on for an hour in, the, in, this, in this worship. She went on, on saying, God, no matter what you do, where are you coming from? God will be gracious to you. The only thing was, she didn't mention the name of Jesus. Wasn't, wasn't talking about anybody, anybody being saved. It was just, no matter what, you, 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 what your situation, no matter where you come from or who you are, it's all right. God doesn't care very much about, about your sin. You, God, God's just going to accept you as you are. In some parts of the world... I'm thinking of America at the moment. In some parts of the world, people are beginning to say, you don't even need Jesus. God, God, God will be gracious even if you don't know Jesus. All right, God will still be gracious to you. In other words, the, the, the idea of, I, used to, I wrote an article once called Hyper Grace. And a few months later, I wrote another one called Hyper, Hyper Grace. Uh, I, I mean, this tendency to, to say God doesn't really care about anything you do very much is, is becoming to an extreme. And where, whereas 20 years ago you, you spent your time trying to persuade people of grace, now you're really on the other side. You need to start, we need to start saying grace trains us. God trains us to live sober, upright, and godly lives. It says Titus chapter 2. The, the, the trend has gone totally on the other side. And there are people who so much believe in security and grace that really, whether you, whether you know Jesus or not, doesn't matter very much. God, God's going to be gracious to you. Well, that, that's an extreme the other way. So I'm asking the question, does God get angry with us? And, and, and there are people around who say, no matter what you do, God's not going to be angry with you. What do you think about that? Well, I answer in this way. And again, I make the distinction between your total position and what you might do within that position. Your total position is one that God will never be angry with you. Isaiah is talking about this total position. The the, the Leviathan's been slaughtered. The the dragon's been slain. God's vineyard is there, protected and provided by God. And I have no wrath. But, But it's not saying that God never gets angry with anything you ever do, I don't think it means that. It means your position is secure. God's never going to say, I'm so angry with you that I'm getting rid of you. Or let me put it to you like this. Imagine that you're in a family, and uh, you have a little boy or a little girl, and and she's a bit naughty, and and, and you're a bit angry with her. Maybe you even punish him or punish her. You cut her pocket money or say, go and stay in your room for an hour or something. You, You do something to show that you're angry with her. Yeah, but you don't say... 
you're not my son anymore. Go away, I don't want you. I'm getting rid of you. you, you you've, you've been naughty, so, so get rid of you. Go and find somebody else to be your dad. No, no, you, you, don't, you don't throw the child out. In that sense, you will never do that. You will never, never get angry. I remember when my children first uh, left Africa and came to UK to study. And the first one was T- my oldest daughter, Tina. And I, I said to her, Tina, no matter what you do, it doesn't matter, this is your home. If you end up getting pregnant or something, it's all right, this is still your home. You may think that's a risky thing to say, but that's what I said. No matter what you do, this is home for you. And if you're in trouble, one telephone call, and I'll be by your side within 24 hours. That was a long time ago. Today, I think booking tickets might take a bit longer than that. But uh, that's what I said years ago. Don't you think that if a father can say that, that God says the same thing? No matter what you do, you're still my child. You just do something foolish, one, one prayer call, and I'm, I'm there, I'm there with you. No, your position cannot be touched. I don't think it means that God can never get angry with anything you ever do, because obviously that, that's not scriptural. You can think of scriptures, surely, that say God got angry with his people. But it's not that he gets angry with his people so as to, to scrap his people, abolish his people. God is propitiated. You, you know that word from the New Testament? Jesus is our propitiation. Do you know what that word means? The word propitiation, it comes in Romans 3.25. God put forward Jesus to be our propitiation, so the, the old-fashioned translations. Uh, Jesus died not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, 1 John chapter 2 and, and verse 2. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that word propitiation mean? It means a sacrifice that swallows up anger. A sac- when someone's angry to you and you, you give a, a sacrifice or an offering and, and they're not angry anymore, uh, propitiation is a sacrifice that swallows up anger. And the Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And it means that God cannot be angry with us in the sense of, of uh, being angry with our whole position. He can't say to us, no, I've changed my mind about you. I'm sort of angry. I think I want to get rid of you. He can't do that. I have no anger. God never gets angry with us in the sense of, of removing us from our position. I'm I'm speaking tonight about position, our basic starting point of living this Christian life. It is one where God is propitiated. God is our Father. God is never, never, never going to be angry with us to the extent of saying, well, I'm so angry with you, I'm getting rid of you. He'll never do that. There is no anger of that kind. God is propitiated. And Isaiah's already been saying this. He said it in, in chapter 12 when he describes the greatness of salvation to Israel and Ephraim. He said, he says the same thing. There's a great song in Isaiah chapter 12. You will say, in that day I will give thanks to you, O Lord, because though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away. That's what happens when you get saved. The anger of God is turned away. In terms of your position, your old status in the kingdom of God, the anger of God is gone. God is propitiated. He'll never be angry with you again. I have no anger, says Isaiah in this vision of the final state of the people of God. So God has no anger, he is propitiated. And and if we have any enemies, 
God enjoys dealing with them. Look at, look at what Isaiah says. He says, would that I had some thorns and briars to battle. I could, I could do with some nice enemies to fight, says God. I'd, I'd, like the, I'd like the fun of fighting with some enemies. If only there were some, 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 some briars and thorns and uh, things that would damage the vineyard. If only there were such things, I would march against them. I would burn them up altogether. God takes delight in dealing with any enemies that we might have. I wish I could find some weeds in this garden, says God, because I'd march against them and burn them all up and deal with them. God takes joy and delight in dealing with any enemies that we've got. You see, when we're fighting something in the Christian life, you're not on your own. God, God takes delight in fighting against anything that might get in the way of your working out your salvation. If God is for us, says Paul, who can be against us? If God is battling and fighting against the very things which are your enemies, it might come and be weeds in the vineyard, well, then you're going to be all right. God's taking delight in keeping his vineyard pure and clean. And then, lastly, it says that God is determined that his kingdom not only will affect us, he is planning to fill the whole world with fruit. Look at it in verse 6. In days to come, Jacob, God's people, Israel, which means us, we're we're God's Israel, grafted into his people. In those days to come, Jacob will take fruit, Israel will blossom and put forth fruits, shoots, and fill the whole world with fruits. And that verse that I wanted to read to you at the very end, look at it again. In that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the, in the land of Assyria, which of course is the same as Iraq that we are, we are, we are always watching so much these days, that those who were lost in the middle of Iraq those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and they will worship the Lord on his holy mountain at Jerusalem. In other words, the picture is a picture that if only we will get into this inheritance of ours, if only we will be working out our salvation, we will have a ministry to the whole world, the entire world will be reached with the gospel. And that's the promise of scripture. The earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. In, in that day, Isaiah 2, he's already said it in chapter 2, all nations are flowing uphill. Rivers don't flow uphill, but but this river in Isaiah 2 does. All nations are flowing uphill, saying, come, let us go to the the mountain of the house of the Lord. Let's go to the God of, of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Out of Zion, the place where Jesus died, will go the law, the word of God will go out of Jerusalem. The scriptures picture a day when all nations are reached. And if you have eyes to see, you can see it happening. God, God moving nations around all over the place, even today. All these Muslims coming in England, they're coming here to get saved. I don't know whether you believe that, but they are. They're coming here to get saved. We used to try to get to them. Now they come to us. It's cheaper on the airfares. They, 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 they're coming to us. God's moving whole nations around. Don't get depressed. Jesus is the Lord of history. Nothing ever happens in, in history except for the sake of God's kingdom. Those days when, when under Paul, those Romans were there building roads and conquering the whole world, and then the Romans disappeared. But when they disappeared, there were no borders. You've heard me say before, I'm always jealous of Paul. He never had to get a visa. 
Just imagine, he could go all over the place. He never had to get a visa. There's only one language. He never had to learn a language. The whole, the whole, the whole Roman Empire all spoke Greek. God moves whole nations around. The British go and try to paint the maps of the world pink and conquer everywhere. And then one day the, the British Empire collapses. The sun, the empire upon which the sun would never set, one day the sun did set. But they left their language behind. You can go to anywhere in, in, in Africa and talk English. The British left their language behind on the French. God moves whole nations around. And, and he's still doing it. Just, just open your eyes. Whole nations are being moved around. They're being moved around in the interest of the gospel. Only a question of time before all nations are reached. It's happening already. Fifty years ago, most Christians were, were white. Nowadays, most Christians are not white. Fifty years ago, most Christians were in the Northern Hemisphere. Today, most Christians are in the Southern Hemisphere. Fifty years ago, the centers of the gospel was London and, and, and Wheaton in America and, and these places. Today, it's Singapore and Manila and Indonesia. God's reaching whole nations. He'll, he'll leave this nation, let them have a financial collapse and, and deteriorate while he gives attention to another one. He, he's reaching whole nations. And the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. He didn't say, go and make a few disciples in all nations. He said, go and make nations into disciples. Get this nation. Let there be so many Christians that the nation is virtually a Christian country because the Christians are so influential. And then go and get this one, and then get this one, and then this one, and this one, until you get the whole lot. Go and make disciples of all nations until finally Israel comes in. And when Israel comes in, what will it be? Life from the dead, worldwide revival. Read Romans 11. If only we work out our salvation, God will give us ministry. And that ministry will have something to do with the reaching of the whole world. Paul says, I want to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of. What was it? What was the particular thing that Paul wanted to do when he said, I want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of me? I think the answer was he wanted churches all over the Mediterranean world. He said, on one occasion, I finished my work from Jerusalem to Illyricum. What does he mean, I finished my work? Was, was there no one unsaved in Jerusalem? I don't have any more, anything more to do between Jerusalem and Illyricum. I'm finished there. What does he mean? He means the churches there are established. Now I'm coming to Rome, and I want to go to Spain. What God lays hold of us for is to bring his kingdom everywhere. And we ought to be international people. I don't mean we travel all the time, but, but I mean our interests should be worldwide. I was once in the library, the Witz Library in Johannesburg, wandering along the journals sections, and I noticed something, just wandering around the journals section of the library in Johannesburg. I noticed something. Only two, two types of people use the word international for their journals. The international journal of this, the international journal of that, the international magazine of this. Only two types of people use the word international. The communists and the Christians. They're the people whose vision is so international. Workers of the world unite. They, they've got an international vision. And the Christian church has an international vision as well. We are concerned about reaching nations. Our, our calling, when we're working out salvation, it, it won't be parochial. It won't be just around our little circle. It will take us out. Remember the day of Pentecost, they were there behind locked doors, just hiding from everybody in, in a locked upper room until the Spirit came. Once the Spirit came, within seconds, they weren't behind locked doors. They were out on the streets and 3,000 were saved. Holy Spirit pushes you out. 
Holy Spirit pushes you into, into areas where you've not been before. Locally, maybe not so locally. One day, if only you will see this, says, says Isaiah. If only you will see that the enemy is slaughtered. The dragon in the sea has been finished and, and, and dealt with. If only you will see I'm keeping you, protecting you. If only you will see that I'm bringing forth fruitfulness. The day will come, says Isaiah. When this gospel message that Isaiah's expounding in this Old Testament manner, when this gospel message will fill the whole world with fruit, and even Assyria, Iraq, Egypt, even these pagan lands. It was Egypt that Israel was delivered from. The enemy of God was Egypt. Iraq and Assyria, they were the traditional enemies of God's people. Even God's traditional enemies will come into the kingdom of God. In my, in my view, you, could, you can think about this, but in my opinion, it's only a question of time before Islam falls. And people in, in the Muslim world are saved in their thousands. It, it's happening in some parts of the world already. 10% of China is saved. I've read it in Indian newspapers. If we are not careful, whole, whole states are going to be saved. I was a few months ago in Nagaland. Have you ever heard of Nagaland? There are Baptist churches all over the place. There's no Hindus there. Nobody speaks Hindi. The Indians keep very quiet about it. There are thousands of Christians it is, the, it is the world's only Baptist state, and it's in the middle of India. And there are no Hindus there. It's only a question of time before whole work, bits of the world, which aren't, we are not used to being Christian, are going to be more Christian than the so-called Christian West. The whole world is about to be filled with fruit. It's going to happen. Jesus will reign. Remember these old, these old missionaries? They used to sing that song, Jesus will reign, where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom shall stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. They used to sing those old hymns. And they're still true. Jesus will reign, where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom will stretch from shore to shore, if we will work out our salvation, we'll touch everybody everywhere. We begin by seeing our position. The enemy is slaughtered. The dragon's been got rid of. We're being guarded. We're being protected. We're being cared for. We're going to be fruitful. And the whole world is going to be reached for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can have some little part to play in it. Where we are, down the road, maybe a bit further than down the road. If only we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's stand and let's pray together as we bring our evening to a close. Our Father, I pray that we may see these things in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may see our position, that we may see and know and feel that the dragon is slaughtered, that the dragon is slain, that the fleeing serpent has been, has been got rid of and banished and is about to be thrown into the lake of fire. I pray, Lord, that we may see our position and then work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are at work in us. Do it, we pray. Help us and bless us in these days together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Praise God.